Hello, listeners. I'm Michael Lanspa, Web Director for the ATS Critical Care Assembly. Thank you for listening. This Breathe Easy podcast addresses the challenges of studying extracorporeal life support for respiratory failure. I'm joined today by Dr. Eddie Fan, Associate Professor of Critical Care at University of Toronto and an exceptional investigator into the use of extracorporeal life support in patients with ARDS. He's one of the investigators of the recently published EOLIA trial study. First, thank you, Eddie, for joining me. My pleasure. I'd like to start by asking about the historical controversy for using ECLS in patients with respiratory failure. Why are we still asking the question of whether or not to use this technology? Well, like most technologies, ECLS has evolved considerably over time, uh, along with our understanding of ARDS, patient physiology, patient selection for this kind of technology, and very early clinical trials such as the NIH-led trial by Warren Zapel in 1979 and the subsequent CO2 removal trial in 1994 led by Alan Morris, they had negative results that dulled enthusiasm for the use of ECLS in adults with respiratory failure. And it wasn't until the CSER trial in 2009 that was the first randomized controlled trial, I would say in the modern era of ECMO, using a veno-venous configuration in patients with severe ARDS um, that changed our thinking about this. This trial was conducted uh, in an expert center, uh, which also helped things. And although the results of the trial have been criticized, um, when you look at the CSER results along with those from the H1N1 ECMO experience in many jurisdictions around the world, these things really help to bring the use of ECLS for ARDS in adults back into the spotlight. You mentioned that the CSER trial, which was a randomized controlled trial, had some uh, criticized results. What, what are those criticisms? Well, I, we were all hoping that the CSER trial would answer the very important question of, does venovenous ECMO lead to a survival advantage in patients with severe ARDS? And we thought the CSER trial would help us to answer that question. But by design, the CSER trial was really not a trial of VV ECMO versus no VV ECMO. It really was a trial of referring very ill patients with severe ARDS to an expert center uh, in Leicester uh, where you could receive VV ECMO as a part of the strategy for uh, care in these uh, severely ill patients. It was also a pragmatic study where in uh, the control group, mechanical ventilation and other aspects of care were not protocolized, and many of those patients did not receive what we would consider best conventional lung-protective mechanical ventilation. And then finally, as a result of referring the patients that were randomized to consideration for ECMO, of the 90 patients that went to Leicester for consideration of ECMO, about a quarter of them didn't actually get onto ECMO. The clinicians there tweaked the sedation, changed the ventilator settings, maybe tried some alternative therapies, and they got better without requiring ECMO. So in the end, the trial didn't really help us to answer the question of does ECMO in and of itself improve outcomes, but really help to tell us that referring these sick patients to an expert center where ECMO could be provided seemed to be associated with the benefit. I wanted to bring up the recently published EOLIA trial, of which you are one of the authors. Uh, can you briefly explain to our listeners some of the challenges you had with uh, the design of that study? Well, I think the design of all randomized control trials are challenging, um, but just like with other trials in critical care, we learned a lot from trials that preceded EOLIA, particularly, again, the CSER, the CSER trial. EOLIA was designed to be a multi-center randomized control trial to help answer the question, again, of whether VV ECMO 
is efficacious in adults with severe ARDS. Among the many challenges of conducting such a study was the need to recruit many study centers given the relatively small number of potentially eligible patients. There really aren't a lot of very severe uh, ARDS patients who would meet these kinds of inclusion criteria. Um, by the nature of the intervention, we needed to enroll these very critically ill patients early. And perhaps one of the more controversial parts of the study design was the need in many of these expert centers that were already using ECMO, the need to provide an ethical rescue option for patients who developed life-threatening hypoxemia in the control group. Um, and so I think uh, listeners can appreciate that all of these challenges in some way, shape, or form factored into the overall results that we ultimately obtained in the EOLIA trial. One challenge I see with interpreting the literature for extracorporeal life support that you touched upon was how we determine inclusion criteria for patients who get ECLS. So if you were designing a perfect study to answer that question, how would you determine criteria for what patients should be enrolled and which patients should receive extracorporeal life support? I actually think that the inclusion criteria that were used in both the CSER trial and the EOLIA trial are actually a pretty reasonable starting point. Um, as we've learned more from observational studies about the global experience in ECLS for ARDS, uh, these studies have also been key in determining some of the negative prognostic factors that may preclude patients uh, for consideration for ECLS. So some recent trials, for instance, have suggested certain patient populations who don't seem to benefit from ECLS, these might be patients that we wouldn't include in such a study. And some examples might be patients who had recent stem cell transplantation, patients who have prolonged immunosuppression, uh, patients who have very low BMI. These are just some examples of patients where multiple studies have suggested a poor outcome, uh, even with ECLS in these patients that develop respiratory failure. I think most important when we think about inclusion criteria is, again, the idea of who it, who it may benefit and the presence of any pre-morbid or comorbid condition that would preclude any meaningful outcome with or without ECLS. So this is like an example of a patient who would die or have a highly morbid outcome from some other condition, such as a massive stroke or intracranial hemorrhage, uh, but subsequently not die from respiratory failure. These are the kinds of patients who we don't want to put on ECMO because the outcome is, uh, would be poor. You know, your comment about um, patients who have a very high likelihood to uh, die reminds me of a study done by, uh, I think, Jesse Hall, where the clinicians were asked to estimate how likely they thought someone was to die, and a surprising percentage of patients who were expected to be moribund actually survived. So how do you take that into account when you're trying to assess, you know, patients who the clinician thinks has a, a very high likelihood of death when you know, our ability to predict it uh, isn't very good. This is definitely an important uh, point and a, a challenge in our field. I think thinking uh, generally about critically ill patients using validated scoring systems might be a starting point. So if there's some controversy or some uncertainty about the prognosis of the patient or whether or not they truly will have uh, a poor outcome, using Severity of illness scoring, for instance, at ICU admission or at the time that you're assessing potential candidacy may be helpful to understand what the predicted mortality uh, might be in those patients. Specifically thinking about the ECMO situation, again, we have a number of observational studies now of validated scoring systems or prognostic scores such as the RESP score or the PRESERVE score that give us some idea using clinical criteria, uh, biochemical data, mechanical ventilation data that suggest a certain 
group of patients who, even if they get onto ECLS, have a very high uh, mortality exceeding 90%. And again, those might be the patients who uh, you, you would consider not being good candidates uh, for VV ECMO. Well, I think that's a great idea about using the validated scoring systems. I, I think that will definitely add a bit more rigor to uh, all future investigations in uh, not only ECLS, but other sorts of therapies that are applied in very high-risk patients. I'd like to um, bring up something that you'd mentioned earlier about wanting to design a study that had an ethical rescue option for the critically ill. And I'd like to discuss that in terms of equipoise. Uh, we observed a pretty high crossover rate in the EOLIA trial, which suggests that some of the investigators already believed that ECLS is beneficial. How do you conduct a trial in the desperately ill in the absence of that equipoise? So this is a major challenge, uh, as it was for EOLIA and for any future trials that may occur in this, uh, in this space. Um, I think it's important to recognize that ECLS is more than just a device that we pick up off the shelf. It's a huge effort from an interprofessional team providing life-saving care for a very critically ill patient. As a result, um, this is best done in large referral centers uh, that has all that available expertise and all that team uh, available for these patients. And clinical trials of these kinds of complex interventions, they need to be conducted in these centers that have that experience and expertise. But you're absolutely right that these are Therefore, exactly those centers that probably have the least equipoise um, in the technology, uh, even, for instance, before EOLIA started. So if a trial is designed and conducted by less expert centers, that could confound the results as well uh, due to lack of familiarity, lack of experience, lack of the appropriate infrastructure to deliver that complex intervention. Indeed, some of the criticisms of the earlier randomized control trials that we talked about, both the uh, Zapel study in 1979 and the Alan Morris study in 1994, was focused on the lack of experience and expertise by some of the study centers that participated in that trial. So lack of equipoise is going to be a major challenge to the feasibility of any future study in this field. Well, aside from just the potential lack of equipoise for ECLS, there are several other therapies that... Um clinicians might be inclined to add when a patient's desperately ill that may have unproven or questionable efficacy. And these things might be like right now, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation or inhaled nitric oxide, proning, uh, paralysis. How does one design a study in this patient population that allows for all this other potential noise? This is definitely, again, a, another challenge of conducting randomized control trials. And I think the best way to handle this would be to protocolize uh, in both the intervention and the uh, control group as many aspects of care as possible uh, and to try to limit any deviations from the protocol whenever possible. Uh, if they occur, they need to be documented carefully and the reasons for those deviations uh, should be uh, explained. Um, and again, this is maybe another potential benefit of conducting these kinds of complex clinical trials in expert centers they might have that experience with dealing with these very sick patients or having participated previously in similar trials and may better recognize the importance of trying to stay on protocol so that we can really get the signal rather than a lot of noise. Well, I couldn't agree more about the protocolization. I think that is a key aspect that uh, definitely we need to embrace for all of our future studies. I'm curious about whether or not you think all tertiary care hospitals should offer ECLS for respiratory failure. Or do you think we need to wait until more studies are performed? 
I think at the present time, um, ECLS for respiratory failure should remain concentrated in a small number of expert high-volume centers using a kind of regionalized or hub-and-spoke uh, model. And I think we actually have some data to support that idea. There was a study published by Ryan Barbaro from the University of Michigan in the Blue Journal a few years ago that showed a clear volume-outcome relationship demonstrating improved outcomes in centers providing 30 or more cases of ECLS per year as compared to centers that per perform five or less cases. Um, and again, that's not surprising given the complexity of the intervention, the need for experience and expertise in delivering this uh, uh, sort of care. So in the end, um, as with your previous questions, it's really not clear that another study will be performed or even feasible for some of the things that we've already discussed. So clinicians and stakeholders currently will have to consider the totality of the available evidence that we have, both from the randomized control trials that have been done and some of the high-quality observational uh, data that's available uh, in eventually deciding on whether or not they're going to provide this therapy in 2018. I think that's a great answer. But at the ATS uh, International Conference, when we were discussing the results of the EOLIA trial, it seemed interesting that, uh, as you pointed out, there's still some uh, criticism. And I'm curious, if we were to try to say, in an ideal world, we're going to try to design a study to answer this question definitively, um, how would you approach that? Well, in the ideal world, a large multi-center randomized control trial comparing early VV ECMO to lung, uh, lung protective conventional mechanical ventilation that included all the evidence-based interventions we know that are beneficial, such as neuromuscular blockade and prone positioning when appropriate, um, would probably be the key study to answer this question definitively. Both groups, as we've discussed, would receive highly protocolized care. And again, in an ideal world, where we're really trying to get at the signal and the biological efficacy of VV ECMO, we wouldn't provide an opportunity for crossover that might, again, confound the results of such a trial. But unfortunately, I think, as we've discussed, the feasibility of such a trial, uh, given the current state of uh, uh, data, is extremely low. And I'm pessimistic that such a study uh, will be conducted in the near future. Yes, unfortunately, I share some of your uh, pessimism. Uh, but it seems that despite the controversy, more and more institutions are offering extracorporeal life support. Do you think that ECLS education should be a mandatory requirement for all critical care trainees? I don't think so at the moment. I think um, the most useful educational experiences for the care of patients supported with ECLS involve not only didactic teaching around the technology, the physiology, um, it also includes, very importantly, hands-on experience. So you need some probably case-based, high-fidelity simulation, but also the ability to take all that and bring it to the bedside. You need to be able to put that knowledge into practice and have exposure to real-world cases to reinforce all the concepts that are learned, either through, again, didactic sessions or simulation. And if ECLS education were to roll out to the vast majority of centers, there may be many locations where there wouldn't be that ability to provide that real-world experience to reinforce the education. So I think at the present time, again, going back to the idea of a hub-and-spoke model, like other specialized interventions, things that are also very limited, like ventricular assist devices, solid organ transplantation, I think that ECLS education should be reserved for special additional training or some kind of fellowship after your core training in critical care, because again, it's so important not only to have the education, but the reinforcement from 
cases and real-world experience, which requires some case volume. Well said. I think this was an excellent discussion here about not only the Eolia trial, but all the challenges in studying extracorporeal life support. This uh, concludes our Breathe Easy podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Eddie Fan, for a great discussion on the challenges of studying extracorporeal life support in ARDS. Uh, this is Michael Lanspell for the American Thoracic Society Critical Care Assembly. Thank you.